Yo, I was reading my prayer book. I have this like liturgical prayer book thing that I read. It's called Feasting on the Word. And I was reading it today. And you know what they call it? Like this liturgical prayer book calls today Low Attendance Sunday. (laughs) That's what they call it. They're like, after Easter, nobody wants to come. So give yourselves a pat on the back or a little round of applause for being here. Good job. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach in a weird way today. I'm going to preach in like three parts, okay? And so as I preach in these three parts, um, I'm just going to tell you exactly what I'm going to preach on and why I'm excited on Low Attended Sunday to hang out with everybody and to talk to you because this is the deal. I believe that this church, I absolutely believe this, I believe that this church is a part of a movement that is going to change the way we see American Christianity for the next 500 years. I absolutely believe that. I believe that we are going to usher in like truly good news and we're going to usher it in for the next 500 years. And here, I'm just going to lay it all out. I'm excited because we're starting a giving campaign and in this giving campaign, if you believe that our church is going to usher in the good news of Christianity for the next 500 years, I want you to give to this church. That's what I want you to do. That's why I'm excited. That's what we're going to talk about and we're going to talk about it in three parts. All right, part one. Let's talk about history. Y'all down for some like really terrible dime store history? <laughs> Good. Um, let's talk about it. So I want to talk about uh, why I believe our church is going to be uh, a new expression of Christianity for the next 500 years. Uh, and it, we have to go back 500 years and we have to go back to Catholicism. Okay. How many people grew up Catholic or have some idea? Yeah, a, a lot more than last service. And, uh, and Catholicism, and again, this is a poor, theo- a poor history. There's a lot of stuff, but I'm going to give you the basics. 500 years ago, priests read to you from the Bible. You went to church, and when priests read to you from the Bible, most people could not read. Okay, that was a new thing. Um, uh, re- or, uh, that was a thing. And, then, uh, and not only that, but the priests were reading the Bible in Latin. And most people, if not all people, they did not speak Latin. So what you had, or you had a group of people who were, who were experiencing God through a priest reading a Bible to you in a language you didn't understand. Okay? We got that? And so what did the Catholic Church start to do? Well, the Catholic Church started to go, since people can't understand what we're saying anyway, I'm just going to start saying that everybody's a sinner, and if you want to be absolved of your sin, then you need to pay the church indulgences. And so that's what they started doing. They started saying, hey, you're a sinner. Um, the Bible says it, and if you want to start um, being absolved of your sin pay us. Okay. And so people were like, all right, I guess this is what I have to do. And so they started paying the church and the church would be like, this is great. You're absolved of your sin till next month when you need to pay us again. And that's the way that church worked at that time. Now, the thing is we like small, manageable gods. We like our God to be small and manageable. We like our God to be a God uh, that we can control. And so this wasn't a giant deal for people because really God was just a transaction, right? We sort of like the idea of God as just a transaction. In fact, as human beings, we tend to revert back to a God who's more of a transaction than the infinite and unimaginable. But a guy came along. His name was Martin Luther. You ever hear of Martin Luther? Yeah. 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 He came along and he was like, I don't like this any longer. I don't like this indulgence thing. What we need to get back to is a progressive and good and generous Christianity. And so Luther attempted to do that and for a while did do that. And did that by saying it is by faith alone that we are saved. It's not by paying indulgences. We have a relationship with Jesus. It's not the priest who has the relationship. We have that relationship. And this is good news. That means that there is access to God for everybody. And people were excited about this. And it did change the shape of Christianity. And people were so excited that a couple wars started because of it. (laughs) Right? Because that's what we do. We get excited. Let's get violent. It's awful. 
It's really awful. Um, and so what happened? Well, for a while, like I said, it was good news. But then, because we like to make our God small and manageable, what ended up happening was we said, well, how much faith do we have to have? Or what are the rules for us to show our faith? Or, or what if God doesn't think we have enough faith? What do we have to do then? To the point where all these rules and platitudes and morals were created from this idea of faith alone. To the point that even Martin Luther himself started excluding people from faith alone. Started saying faith alone for everybody, but not for these people over here. Okay? That's what happened because we like our gods small. Now I'm jumping over a lot of history. And I'm bringing us to present day right now. Present day America. I'm speaking uh, pretty much to Americans at this point. And here's the deal. We've still adopted this idea um, that, that Martin Luther or the Lutherans came up with. We've adopted the idea of faith alone, but we have morphed it and moved it and, and you know, made it into such a thing that we've created, once again, a small and manageable God. We've created a God um, that, that is easy to tame. And so what we've done is we've created a God so incredibly small that God loves us and loves the American evangelical church, evangelical in quotes. God loves us, right? But the Bible clearly says, and even though there are 40,000 denominations, each with different interpretations of scripture, the Bible still clearly says, okay? And God forbid we get the interpretations wrong. God forbid we, we misinterpret something from a few thousand years ago written at a time that we don't even understand. God is so small that God gets angry with that and puts us in jeopardy, Right? And God is so small that God loves us all and it's by faith alone unless you are of a different religion, unless you are of a different faith, unless you are of a different sexual orientation, unless you're of a different gender identity. And then do not hang out with those people because there's faith and God loves you, but there's a line that's drawn and we're on this side and you are on that side. And God is so small and so upset that if you hang out with the wrong group, that God's going to maybe condemn you for doing that. Or if you affirm the wrong group, God condemns you, right? And our God is so small that even though Jesus in our scriptures does these miracles where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with, with five loaves and two fishes and we sing songs like our God is great and strong and amen. Um, when it comes time to actually feed people and take care of people, people are like, oh, I don't, we can't do that. We cannot take care of people. We cannot feed people. In fact, we should probably put up a wall. That's what we should do. And here's the thing. What we do is our God is so small that we've decided our God can no longer perform miracles, can no longer take care of people that are outside of us. And our God is so small that God can only be white and Western. All right? That's it. So do not be anything but white and Western and male, preferably. Okay? Because God is so small that if we try to bring in any other culture or influence into our Christianity, well, that's demonic or that's, I, that's, I, that's what's the word? Idol? Idol? Idolatry. Thank you. I was going to say idyllic. I was like, it's not idyllic. <laughs> no, that's idolatry, right? And so my wife, who's Indian, grew up with the Christianity where she had to like let go of her Indian culture because all that was demonic and wrong and, and spirits. And she grew up like eschewing like a major part of her life because we're supposed to be white and Western when we're Christian. Our God is that small. Some of you know, most of you know at this point, I talk about it all the time, my dad's trans. And when she came out, I remember we had this conversation and she said to me, you know, I still don't get why when I came out, all my friends ditched me so quickly. I still, I still am having a hard time understanding that piece. And I was like, dad, that's the easiest part for me to understand. You being trans threatens their Christianity. Their God is so small that for them to affirm and love and include you means that their God would condemn them. Of course they ditched you. Of course. And that is the Christianity that we have sort of come to. 
And here's the beauty of our church. I believe our church is already in the process of changing all of that. I believe that our church is already in the process of bringing good news. I believe that our church can usher in a progressive, just, and generous Christianity from the infinite and unimaginable God for the next 500 years. I believe we can do it. And here's how I believe we can do it. I'm going to read it to you. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about each one of these things very specifically. Okay, I believe we're going to do it because we worship a God who is not afraid of LGBTQIA identifying people, Muslims, migrants, refugees, and everyone in between. We worship a God who ordains and inspires scripture in such a way that it always asks us to read with wisdom of the present and not just the past. We worship a God who sends God's spirit again to gain that kind of wisdom. We worship a God who isn't angry that God needs the blood of Jesus to see us as good we worship a God who sees the death and resurrection as God being the ultimate suffering participant, not a substitutionary atonement. We worship a God who is not white and who implores us to seek out expressions of God that are not part of the dominant white Western culture. And we worship a God who implores us to fight for justice by those oppressed by a dominant white culture. We worship a God who wants nothing more than to see all of God's creation affirmed, cared for, brought into equity, known as siblings. These are the modern day miracles first shown to us by Jesus Christ that we get to continue into the next 500 years. I believe in that. I believe our church is a part of that. And if you believe our church can be a part of that too, give to it. <sighs> Amen. That was part one. <laughs> Here's part two. <laughs> That's why I had to side between parts. So I said we're going to go over, uh, each week, go over one of the things that our church does that we feel ushers in a new kind of Christianity. Now today, what I want to talk about is theologically why we've become an LGBTQI-affirming church. Now, if you've been at this church for three or four years, you know why we've become an affirming church. We've talked about this. But what we also recognize is that this church is growing, okay? That this church is moving in a new way where some of y'all are new. Some of you uh, are excited by the fact that we're an affirming church, but you're like, but why? Where's the theology behind it? Well, today I want to give us a why. Here is why we do what we do. So in part two, let's talk about that. How many people have heard of the clobber passages? Anybody ever hear of clobber passages? A couple of y'all. Okay. Clobber passages are seven passages in our scripture. Grace, when you raised your hand, you were like, <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, I know. I know. It was, I just loved it. I loved it. Um, when we talk about clobber passages, there are seven scriptures, seven passages in scripture that say, um, man shall not lie with man and women should not lie with women. Okay. There's seven passages of, of thousands. Okay. But those seven passages pose a problem for people. None of those seven passages are why we've become affirming. Truth of the matter is there's, there's a lot of really good authors and writers and theologians who have done incredible work around exegeting those passages and talking about those passages in culture and context. And so what we'll do for you is on our website, we'll have some of those books for you. A lot of them come from our friends. You can read those at any time, but that's not why we are an affirming church. The reason that we are an affirming church is because we see what I like to call the progressive arc of scripture or the progressive arc of God. Now, you're all going to have to hang in with me because we're going to start to do a little Bible study now, okay? So don't, don't flutter in and out. I need you all to hang on, all right? Because it's going to get a little bit, we're going to go a little bit in, okay? The progressive arc, arc of God that I see is I see a God in our scriptures who throughout our scriptures is constantly moving and constantly changing to be more loving, more inclusive, more affirming, more gracious, and, and go on and on with that list, right? 
on and on throughout our scriptures, that's the way that God progresses. So I want to give us examples of that, and I want to start in some really exciting passages. So we're going to look at Exodus and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. (laughs) No, they're not that exciting to me. But I wanted to talk about it. And what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about slavery, and then we're going to talk again about idolatry. Both things are terrible, okay? Let's, right up front, they are terrible. We're going to talk about them. But what I want us to pay attention to is I want us to pay attention to the way that people, the people who are writing these passages, are viewing their God. Okay, let's look at that real quick. So here we go. I want to jump into um, this first one. This is Exodus 21, and it says this, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. Awful, all right? We're talking about slavery. And not to, um, not to justify slavery by any means, but during this time, slaves were completely common. All right? Everybody had slaves. Your slaves were often your own people, all right? And it's awful, um, but we're calling it what it is in this worldview. So what do we have? Well, when a man's, uh, male slave uh, serves you for seven years, let him go free. Women, they're subhuman. Do not let them go free. They need to stick around. That's the law, okay? Let's move forward a couple hundred years. We're talking a couple hundred, uh, a couple hundred years is a few generations, right? And let's see what God says once again about slavery. It's really the same thing. But this time, God says, If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. All right, Bible study time. And because this is low attendance Sunday, I'm going to make you all participate, okay? (laughs) All right. What differences do we see between these two passages? You can just shout it out. Shout it out. You get something at the end. end. There's a generosity piece. Women Women are included as well. All we're doing is moving 200 years. That's all we've done. And already, we have God saying two different things. We have God saying, no, this is just men, that's it. Women are subhuman. And then we have God going, no, both women and men, because they're both human, they're both my kids, and give generously to them as they go. This is a God who is moving on a progressive arc towards generosity, towards justice, towards uh, more love, towards more inclusion. Now, here's the thing. We say all the time, God is not changing, right? We say that all the time. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that the people that are writing the Bible are changing. And if we believe that Scripture is inspired, then I believe that God or the Spirit is inspiring those people to change in a way that is more progressive. And here's the deal. If we still believe that Scripture is alive and living and breathing and we still follow it, does that progressive art continue today? Does God still implore us? Does the Spirit still move within us to move beyond what is written in Scripture and to be ourselves more progressive, more inclusive, more loving? Is it one of these things where God is going, hey, you used to believe this at one time, but now that thing you believed at one time is getting in the way of the peace that I intend. You need to move forward. You need to progress. We believe it's still living. We believe it's still alive. And if it's still alive and still living, then I don't care what seven passages say. We're getting in the way of the peace that God intends. If we're not affirming the LGBTQIA community, we are following the progressive arc of Scripture. I'm going to give you one more, just to, you know, just to to beat it in your heads. Here's the next one. 
Like I said, this one's about idolatry, and this is what it says. It's from the Ten Commandments. And it says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Wow. Do not make idols, because God's jealous and will punish your family for generations to come. You got it? That's brutal. But again, we have to look at that worldview. And in that worldview, it was completely normal to ostracize other people's gods. You were at war with them. And so if you're at war with them and you're worshiping their god, that's going to pose a problem, right? We're talking about Iron Age, Bronze Age. And so what we have here is, again, people working within a certain context or a certain worldview. All right, let's jump a few hundred years and let's jump to Ezekiel. And this is what the book of Ezekiel says. As surely I live, declares the Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. And the proverb that they're talking about is Deuteronomy 5. It's this. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Okay, once again, shout it out. How has this changed? God's not going through generations. It's just the person. Still sucks. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So there's a big difference. Once again, we see in just a few hundred years, God is progressively moving to be more inclusive, more loving, in this case, more forgiving and more gracious, right? And once again, does God change? I don't know. But the Spirit is coming on people, and people are writing in a way where they're changing because of the goodness of God. John 14, 12 says this. Jesus is with a bunch of followers and Jesus goes, truly I tell you, you're going to do greater things than even I'm going to do when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what I think Jesus is telling each and every one of us are these greater things are to continue to follow this progressive arc of scripture. Pay attention to the way that the Spirit's moving. And when God speaks to us and says, hey, you hurting this person, you not affirming this person, you not being inclusive, you not being loving, that gets in the way of the peace that I intend. And so in our worldviews, in our time, God calls us to that progression. The progression is why our church is an inclusive church. We believe that the Spirit is moving. We believe that the God continues to speak. And we believe that that ark will continue. And what is that famous MLK quote? The ark bends always towards what? Y'all know? Justice and love, right? And we embody that. That is why we believe that this church is on the, no pun intended, forefront <laughs> Shoot, on the forefront of this new Christianity, a kind of Christianity that sees God as infinite and unimaginable and bigger than any kind of God that we have right now. This is good news. And if you believe in this good news, I want you to give to it. That's part two. Part three. Every year we do a campaign. Three years ago, four years ago, our church had two locations, and we were in a place uh, where we, had, we split from uh, the other location, and it was a terrible time for me, a terrible time for our church. In fact, our church was in debt by quite a bit. Um, I want to say about $91,000. Thanks to the generosity of so many people who were around during that time, our church got out of debt, and I'm really, really happy to say that for the first time in six years as a church, we are projected to finish the year in the black for the first time ever, which is really great news. It won't keep me up at night anymore. It's good. And the thing is, 
is, is this. It's every year we do this campaign, and every year we say, hey, we need this amount of money to make up our budget, right? We've projected this budget, and we need this amount of money to make it up. This year we get to say, we need this amount of money to continue to usher in the good news of God's new kingdom, right? We want to do more. We want to be able to help more. We want to be able to influence more. We want to be able to, to help others say, you know what? I don't believe in that angry, small, little God either. There's a bigger God, an infinite, unimaginable God, a good news God, and you get to be a part of it. We want to use the money for that. And so here's what we're asking. We're asking for $35,000. $35,000 for the next five weeks. We want to raise it either by you pledging money or by you giving a one-time gift. There's these cards on your seat. You could find them. And if you're interested, you can give right now. You don't have to. You can listen to the other three, four messages too and hear why we're going to continue <laughs> to be that church. Also, we're having a party and you can give at the party after you've had some drinks. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is, people. <laughs> no, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. We want to be equitable with the way we pay people. And we were set up with a patriarchal pay structure and we recognize that that's not going to work anymore. That's why we want to raise this money. We want to be able to, to give out loans interest-free to people who need interest-free loans. We want to set up a, a small account to be able to do that. This church, I just had a conversation and thank the good Lord, starting July 1st, we no longer have to be out of here at 1230. We'll have this place way longer. That's going to cost more money. We want to pay for that because we can hang out here a lot longer. We want to be able to do some of those things. If you're interested in finding out more, I'm going to post a blog this week. You'll find out more. And as always, our budget is always online for you to look at. You can look at how we spend our money every step of the way from what I'm paid down to how many pens we buy, which is super interesting. <laughs> and so here's the thing. Why are we, why, here's the thing I'm most excited about. The one way that I think we're going to usher in um, this new just and generous expression of Christianity for the next 500 years is not just by, by our church doing good work, but whatever we raise over 35K, whether it be $1,000 or whether it be another $35,000, we're giving away. We're giving it away to people in our community. We're giving it away to the organizations we support. And we're giving it away in, in the ways that maybe the Spirit leads. We're, quite, we're not quite sure yet. But what we do know is we are finally in a place where we have been blessed by God because of your generosity. And because we've been blessed by your generosity, we could say, hey, we're going to raise this much, but the rest goes out. And that is a blessing in itself. And that brings the good news in itself. And that moves us in the direction of generosity and an inclusive and loving God for the next 500 years. And for that, I'm thankful. Amen. So here's the deal. Here is the deal. I'm not asking you to give because it's an indulgence. Or it's going to absolve you from your sin. It's not. Okay? We're all still going to be the same broken people. I'm doing it because I believe that God is calling us boldly and audaciously to change the world for the cause of Christ. I believe that God is calling us to bring the peace that God intends. And the truth of the matter is there are 91 million people who identify as evangelical, and there's about 5,000 of us doing the work that our church is doing right now. We are on the cusp of something big and something important and something that I believe will change history. And I'm asking you to join us to own it, to be a part of it too. Because ultimately, this is justice. This is generosity. This is the reason the church should still exist. Amen? Amen. Amen. Will you all stand with me? If you're able, please stand. And I want to pray this prayer. And this is just a simple thank you prayer that I want to pray at the end of every one of our messages. And it's this prayer. 
God, thank you for not being small. Thank you for not being old theology. Thank you for not being rules or platitudes or morals. God, thank you for being infinite and unimaginable. Thank you for being constantly at work to show us your unending and irresistible love. And thank you for doing it not just 2,000 years ago, but doing it in the past and doing it in the present and doing it for all time. Amen.